Well, good morning. And welcome back. It's great to be with you. It's a privilege to be invited to share with you. My former colleague, Alan Jacobs, has recently written that we are in a time of great agitation in our society. That's probably a surprise to no one. Uh, and I think we find ourselves at a time where people have lots of confusion and vexation about how Christians ought to live in this world with this confusion and agitation where people are really good at uh, enjoying being with their people, whoever their people are, and really good at having disdain for people that are not their people. Uh, and sometimes there are Christians who have different ideas about how we ought to go about our lives in public, and sometimes even they are not so nice to each other when they're talking about that. And when it comes to being Christians in a country like the United States, it's also very important to ask, what does it mean to be faithful to God and to think rightly about your country? Resisting their, what I like to call twin temptations. Temptation number one is easy affirmation. You know, in other words, United States, God's country has never done anything wrong. Temptation number two, easy condemnation. Oh, look at the horrors that my nation has perpetrated. It's never done anything right. How do we avoid that? And through loving God, love our country properly and live faithfully in our country in this moment where Christians seem to be as confused as everyone else. Well, there are five things I'd like to share with you this morning. Number one is this. You need to recover or discover what I call the first great commission. Now, chances are most of you, someone says great commission. You think about the end of Matthew, Jesus at the end, after his resurrection, he says to make disciples of all nations. That is a great commission, no doubt. Or you're thinking Acts 1-8, you know, go to the ends of the earth being witnesses for Jesus. Truly a great commission. But I'm not talking about that one. I'm talking about one that we find echoed in Psalm chapter 8, verse 6, which says the following. Talk about human beings. You've made him ruler over the works of your hands. You have put everything under his feet, all flocks and herds, and the beasts of the field, the birds of the air, and the fish of the sea, all that swim the paths of the seas. That's echoing what we see in Genesis 126 and 128, where when God creates human beings, he says that they are to have dominion over the creation. Now, it's easy to think, perhaps, that that's only about agriculture, but it's about a whole lot more than agriculture. It has to do with everything involved with managing the world that God gave us. Now, if you're talking about managing the world that God gave us, that sounds like a big task to me. That sounds like a great commission. I sometimes like to call it, again, the forgotten or neglected great commission, but it's right there on page one. Now, it's entirely possible that when one looks at that, you're like, well, how does that have to do with anything that with our allies right now? 
When you think about things like politics, when you think about things like cultural engagement, they are versions of what it means to manage life in God's world. In fact, if you think about what politics itself really is, politics is nothing more than managing our life together and what systems we create so that we can manage our life together. For things as simple as, where do you put a traffic light where there never was one before? Because that's actually a major public problem. Because if you get more traffic and you don't have something to manage that traffic, you're going to have lots of people having accidents. Somebody asks, how do we stop people from having these accidents? Somebody says, well, let's create something so that we create some order so that everybody's not running into each other all the time. So at some point, when there's a little bit of traffic, you create stop signs, you invent electricity. And then somebody says, hey, let's do an even better job of this and create something called stoplights. So you have people who have those inventions, but you use those inventions to manage something that is a public concern because safety for the public is a public concern. It's very, very often people talk about being turned off about politics. They're only thinking about certain issues, but the fact of the matter is that most of political life is actually very mundane things that most of us aren't thinking about that you wind up taking for granted. And you can take them for granted because they actually work pretty well. Now, somebody's involved in managing all that, right? And the fact of the matter is that humans have been given the task we're doing that kind of management from page one. It's entirely possible when I say something like this that a person may say to me, hey, it's great that you talked about this stewardship we're supposed to have, this management of God's world, um, but you're only talking about page one. Do you remember page three, Dr. Baker? Yes, I do remember page three. Page three, you know, the fall that happens on page three? Yes, I remember that too. The curse? Yes, I remember that too. So a person might think, well, isn't that kind of vetoing what God said on page one? Because after the curse, you know, we're looking to be rescued, etc. Well, actually, no, it's not vetoing what's on page one. And think about it this way. The curse talks about childbirth and it talks about the relationship to the ground. Isn't it interesting that God doesn't say every birth from now on, not really going to be births because they'll all be stillbirths. It's not what he says. He says childbirth is still going to happen, but now pain is multiplied in childbirth. And when it comes to your relationship to the land, he doesn't say it will be absolutely fruitless. It's now much more complicated. Now you get weeds. Now you get thorns and thistles. So now you don't only get fruitfulness you get other things that go wrong as well. So it's a more difficult thing to work with the land. So what the fall introduces is lots of complication, but it does not eliminate this initial command that God gave to human beings. And the point we have to think about this is that we, if we have that first great commission, that means if anyone should be thinking about how we engage our world, it ought to be Christian. Christians should not be the ones letting somebody else do that. And I will say this, if you decide to let somebody else do that, don't complain. Because you basically said to them, please, you manage public life. And I trust you. I trust you. 
you turn away. You turn back. And then you're like, hey, what did you do with that? Well, they say, well, you said that I could do whatever I wanted with it and that you would just go along for the ride. And this is, I think, a lot of times what Christians have done when it comes to public life. Withdraw from public life, leave it to somebody else, but then complain because somebody else took it in a direction you didn't want it to go. Well, you checked out. But it's never been something out of which Christians should check out. In a country like the United States, where a citizen can become, at least in theory, the president of the United States, have the highest office of the land, any citizen supposedly can do this, then this is a country where political participation is an actual opportunity. It's an actual way of living out this great commission rather than thinking that only people who have certain connections can do that. You know, we are not Saudi Arabia, which is our ally, but a totalitarian state with no monarchy. We're not North Korea. We're not Thailand. We're the United States of America where we actually talk about opportunities for citizens to participate from the town level all the way up to the highest level. Christians ought to be taking that seriously. But I fear one of the things that we don't do is that we neglect this first great commission and we leave things out. And please understand, some of you guys go, but Christians are talking about politics all the time. No, actually, what Christians are talking about are very selective political crises, is what they're talking about. Because the fact of the matter is, is that most of what gets involved in politics is not about crisis management. It's about a lot of things that most people don't pay attention to. And somebody needs to be doing those things. And Christians ought to be in that game. And if we recover or discover the first great commission, that's one of the things that we need to be doing. Number two, pray for your country, whether it seems like home or not. In the book of Jeremiah, and of course uh, in Jeremiah, things are going downhill because you may be aware that Israel went into exile. Why did Israel go into exile? Well, they had a taste for idolatry, it seems, and God kept warning them about having this taste for idolatry and covenantal infidelity. And eventually God said, I'm warning you. I'm warning you again. You're on your last warning. Exile. That's basically what happens. So while they're in exile, though, God says in chapter 29, verse 7, also seek the peace and prosperity of the city to which I've carried you into exile. Pray for it, because if it prospers, you too will prosper. Now, the fact of the matter is this. There are times when Christians of various stripes feel like the United States isn't home for them. Now, if you're pigmentations like me, that's been most of the history of the United States of America. And if you're an evangelical, or, or if you call yourself an evangelical, we can talk about that tonight, whether you want to use that term or not. But if you call yourself that, there are a lot of people who think, well, now aren't we kind of being pushed to the sides, etc. So here's the thing. No matter what's going on in the country, it is your responsibility to pray for the good of that country. No matter how bad it's doing, pray for it to prosper. Pray for it to flourish, because if it's really flourishing as it should, then it's going to wind up affecting your flourishing. 
And I think a lot of times when, when things are going wrong, we, again, we pray about a crisis. We're not thinking about praying for the good of the country itself. And by the way, this isn't only talking about whether Christians should pray for the United States of America. Christians all around the world should pray for their countries. Strange things that happen sometimes. I think sometimes Christians in the United States of America think about Christians in other parts of the world. They go, hey, all of you in other parts of the world should pray for the good of the United States of America. Kind of forget your own country. But pray for us and pray for our flourishing because that's really what everybody ought to care about. Not exactly. Not exactly. The entire world belongs to God. All the countries of the world belong to God, no matter who's ruling them. And Christians who are in those countries shouldn't be just praying for what's going on here. They need to be praying for what's going on there. Have you ever thought about what Christians should be thinking about their countries? About seeking the flourishing of their countries and not just thinking about our country? Have you thought about that? Because there are Christians in places besides the United States of America. What do you want them to pray for? They shouldn't be just praying for us. They should be praying for where they are. Just like we need to pray for where we are. So pray for your country, whether it seems like home or not. And the fact of the matter is, until Jesus comes and sets everything right, even the best country, whatever that is, will have times where it tells you this is really not a place that wants you. And even in that time, you need to pray for the flourishing of your country rather than just praying that something bad happens to your enemies. Number three, pray for leaders whether they do well in office or not. So in 1 Timothy, we see the following. In 1 Timothy, we see the following, he says. And this is the problem with like several texts in one message, right? All right, 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 2. I'll start with verse 1, actually. I urge then that all re requests, prayers, intercession, and thanksgiving be made for everyone, for kings and all those in authority, that we may live peaceful and quiet lives in all godliness and holiness. Now, I want you to understand something about this text. There's no asterisk besides kings. There's no asterisk that says, in other words, if there's an asterisk, you go to the bottom and you see what it says. So the, there's no asterisk that leads you to say, except for leaders I don't like. Because I guarantee you there are leaders you don't like. You know, you, it might be a surprise to some of you, but, you know, we have a very controversial president of the United States right now. And, and here's the thing about our president of the United States, okay? And we can talk tonight about that too. But here's the thing. Whether you are for him or whether you are against him, you need to pray that his office is executed well for the good of as many people as possible. Whether you like him or not. Because the fact of the matter, I'm not saying you ever, if you voted for him, okay. If you didn't, okay. But whether you voted for them or not, you need to pray for them to carry out their office in a way that benefits all of us. That's what you need to pray for. And, here, and by the way, that also means if you didn't like Barack Obama, same thing. If you didn't like George W. Bush, same thing. Bill Clinton, same things. George H.W. Bush, same thing. Reagan, same thing. Jimmy Carter, same thing. Ford, briefly, same thing. Nixon, same thing. We can just keep going. 
And my point is this. I think Christians are very selective about how they apply this text. There's no selectivity about how you apply this text. Whoever is in office, you need to pray for their flourishing. You have to vote for them next time, but you better pray for them. So somebody once said to me, but if I pray for him to succeed, he might get reelected. I don't know whether he'll get reelected or not, but, but I'll say this much. If he prays and God answers his prayer and it leads to the flourishing of other people, surprise, surprise, better things with that person getting reelected might actually happen because it won't be like what it was before God answered that prayer. All kinds of change happen, as in with that person, as well as with the execution of the office. You have to pray for God to work for every office holder from the town council all the way up to the highest office of the land and pray for leaders that they do their job well and that they serve the common good and that they make it possible as Paul says for Christians to lead their lives in peace and in holiness there's no asterisk there it's a very unpopular thing to say that, no matter what administration's in office. But my question to you is, if you are following God, it's about you following God, not partisan commitments. And if you're following God instead of partisan commitments, then you say, well, that's what the text says. That's what God wants me to do, so I'm going to do it. That's the way it goes. Number four. Number four and five both are come, come from Jesus talking about the greatest commandment uh, it's in various texts uh, in the Gospels, but I'll go to the Matthew 22 version, verses 38 and 39. Jesus' friends, the Pharisees, are asking him, what's the greatest commandment in the law? Because there are a lot of them. And he says, starting at verse 37, Jesus replied, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. So here's point number four. Love God more than anything else. So what this means is, okay, first of all, to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength is the same thing as what is said in Exodus at the beginning of the Decalogue, which is, have no other gods before me. Because if you love God with everything you've got, you can't have any other gods. Because you're giving your all to God and you're worshiping God alone. So there's nothing else that can compete with God. And the point is this, that if you love God, then you can't make your country an idol. And this is what you must understand about whatever you think about the United States of America, the things that it does well, okay? It is not to be worshiped, okay? You can be a patriot, but you should not be a nationalist. Do you know the difference between being a patriot and being a nationalist? A patriot has proper love for their country. They want good things to happen for their country. A nationalist, everything must serve the interest of that country like it's serving a god. That's nationalism. And please understand, friends, I believe that, as G.K. Chesterton said, that the United States is a nation with the soul of a church. But let's not get it twisted, okay? It may be the nation with the soul of a church, but a nation that's had a very distorted history and a very uneven record in living like it's had the soul of a church. You cannot escape that. 
None of that means, oh no, he's hating the United States. No, I'm talking about telling the truth. If you're a nationalist, you're unwilling to tell the truth about the bad things about your country. If you're a patriot, you love your country, and you say, we have these high, lofty aspirations. That's why everybody's so agitated, by the way. The offer of the United States is, here in the United States, we say, our rhetoric is, whether the left or the right, you can have the life you want if you are here. And, and you've got a right to that. And everyone thinks they've got a right to that. And when something's getting in the way of them getting to that right, they think they have a right to get upset. And so everyone's upset because the country's not delivering for them what they hope it will deliver for them. And some people, because of that offer, they think that the United States is like the greatest thing in the world, this great Christian nation, et cetera. Please understand, we are a nation influenced by Christianity. We are not a nation where there was some kind of divine visitation at the Continental Congress or something, where somebody said, and this now is my new nation. By the way, United States, not in the Bible. And it's okay that's not in the Bible. The fact of the matter is, we need to love God, and if we love him, we can say, I'll tell the truth about all the good things my country has done. There's, there's reasons why people want to come here. But I'll also say for all our aspirations, for all our promises, people have legitimate things to complain about. Things about the ongoing problems with race, things about religious freedom, things about abortion. We could just keep going on. Things about the fact that for all the offers the United States makes for a good life, we're actually getting more stratified and the wealthy people are, are great. They're great people, but they've got a whole lot more of the wealth than they used to have. And people who are poor are having a hard time moving. That's the situation we're in right now. But we offer everybody in our rhetoric the possibility of your best life ever. We have great aspirations. We have great failures. Patriots can tell the truth about that. And if you love God more than anything else, then you'll ask the God that you love to help you live in your nation with integrity in your nation, making the most of your citizenship in that nation, but you won't mistake your nation for God himself. Love God more than anything else. And last, the second greatest commandment, Second is this, love your neighbor as yourself. So that's number five. And that means love your neighbors also without an asterisk. And the reason I say that is in this agitated society where we have ideological division, people are very, e it's very easy, especially since social media separates us from actually interacting in person with people a lot of times. It, what happens is people you don't ever see or you only see them virtually, people have all kinds of agitation towards them and they're not inclined to love those people as neighbors. Here's the fact of the matter for all of us. We must reckon with the fact that every divine image bearer is our neighbor. And we need to love them as ourselves. And here's one way that that looks in practice. One way it looks in practice is, when it comes to people that disagree with me, I refuse to dehumanize them, and I refuse to lie about them. 
In fact, I'll even say about them, I think they're 99% wrong, but they've got 1% right. And I won't let anybody say they don't have that 1% right. I'm going to go to the mat for that 1%. Even if I think the other 99% is kind of whack, the 1% I'm going to tell the truth about. I mean, think about this. How many of you love it when somebody comes and has a conversation with you and they seem to intentionally misunderstand you or they tell you stuff about you without ever asking you anything about you? Who do you know that likes that? I don't think I've met anybody that likes that. What if Christians were known as the people that always wanted to treat people with integrity and love and seek the best for them, whether they were on their side or not? What if that was the calling card of Christians? That'd be amazing. It's very important in this moment we have right now in our society where there's all kinds of division and agitation for confusion. It's very important that we are aware of the tremendous opportunity that we have. In fact, all five of these things, discovering that first great commission, praying for your country, praying for leaders, loving God above all else, loving your neighbor as yourself. If we really do those things, if all of God's people were really doing that right now, the world would look up and say, there's some people in the United States that don't seem to be quite so agitated right now. There's some people in the United States right now that, yes, they stand for their convictions, but they care about people that don't share their convictions. And they're known for loving the people that don't share their convictions. And, and people will say, why? And here's why. Because the gospel is better news than we can imagine. And if you really believe that gospel and you're really willing to live that gospel, then you can be people who live in this world, loving God and loving your country in the right way and showing people a way of life in our society where people will say, you know who we need helping us to live out this society? Well, we need Christians. We need more of them because they seem to be onto something that the rest of us have yet to discover. What a vision, what opportunity for you, for me, and for Christians everywhere. I hope we do not squander this opportunity because there is division all over the place. There is confusion all over the place. And people are waiting for someone to show them a path of hope and sanity. I hope the people of God will be those people. Please pray with me. Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you that... We are people of genuine hope. Thank you that you show us to worship you alone, that you've given us a tremendous commission to participate in your world. And you show us a way of life that is a way of life that loves others, whether they're like us or not, whether they agree with us or not, but because they're image bearers, we love them. Help us to portray the gospel to a divided, confused, agitated society. May your church be a witness that makes people stand up and take notice because we show people a hopeful life and a life that leads to the better, not just of us as individuals, but for the good of your world. We praise the name of Jesus. Amen.